You ever think that you take God lightly? You think of him as Santa who keeps a record of whether you've done naughty or nice and then always ends up saying, oh, you're really nice this year. Just kind of have a, a light view of God or, or maybe even want a light view of God. You ever think of God's ways as manageable? Like you, you can manage them. You can manage what it means to walk with God. And to be pleasing to him. It's, it's real manageable. You've got, you've got it in your mind. Like that I, I've got this. Got this down kind of. Could you write everything that you deem important about God in a brief greeting card? Could just sketch it out. I got it. Here's what's really important. I'll put it in this card and... Maybe send it to him on Valentine's Day. Have you ever noticed how quick you are to use God for your own ends? Kind of better go to God for this one. I've, I've got all the rest of our, my life. I've got all that handled. But then I bet, better go to God like for this this particular thing. Do you ever think that the weightier matters of life are centered on temporal things and the, the lighter things about life in your life, when you're thinking about that, you're, you think the lighter things are the spiritual things. I'll kind of address those later. I'll think about them Later. It is interesting to me how light you can view the things of God and how weighty we can view uh, the things of this world that are passing away. It's, it's difficult for all of us. If we were to, my phone pops up on all days on Sunday and tells me how much screen time I had like this past week. And whether or not it's decreased or increased, you know, kind of a deal. What if, what if every Sunday morning, early, you woke up and there was like a, a screen pop up that said, how many times or how often did you think of God this week? How important was that to your thoughts? Do you ever think, this is in one of the books that I read this week, but that you have a domesticated God? You bring him out when you need him. He's a good lapdog to you. He listens and never talks back. He's cozy and he's like a comfort blanket to you. When you're thinking about like, I just need to be kind of comforted in a little cozy situation, that's kind of when I would go to God. One other thing and then we'll begin to move through the text. But I just 
for you to really consider about this is like, do you ever think your religious system becomes like that? Like that it's not about God, it's about your religious system. That's where your comfort is. My comfort is this religious system. It has nothing to do with God. It has to do with whether or not my religious system that domesticates God is satisfied. I have God in my system and as long as my system is there, I feel really good. It's my cozy little blanket. Because it's the system that I adore. It's the system I feel comfortable with. It's the system that comforts me. And as long as I'm in this religious system, and maybe God's there, I'm good. You have a domesticated God, and there really is no true awe. But, God's chief concern is what? His glory. And when we are living in awe, we are offering back our whole lives to Him. It is not our goal in this life to domesticate God. To try to put Him into our little box and pull Him out when we want Him. In reality, we are wanting to live in awe of God and then offer our lives back to Him. In the Ten Commandments, these dangers are explained before us. In the first three commandments, some would even argue the first four likely would be maybe better. But it, it's, um, there is this kind of thing of saying like, one, you can't have a bunch of other gods. Two, you can't make me into what you want me to be. I cannot be contained by that. Three, you might even say, and you cannot, like, dishonor my name. Do not associate me with this domesticated version of me. And do not set your life up to say, oh, I'm this great Christian, like in your mind, I'm walking in this way or whatever. And then in reality, your actions, your life, and your corrupted religion that you have created for yourself, you're associating with me. God cannot be domesticated. And God is not to be taken lightly. And religious people... Take God lightly. Really religious people take God lightly. Really religious people take God lightly. As does the wild rebellious person. A religious person that can put God into their little box that they can manage. That person can take God lightly. Because they believe in a domesticated God that they can pull out when they want Him. There is a danger here. What's the difference? How do you know the difference between you managing God or you throwing off God? How do you know the difference? 
Well, Isaiah 6, when Isaiah saw the Lord, or at least as much as he could, without dying, saw the Lord, and and the angelic hosts were saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth, the whole earth is full of His glory. Is that manageable? Was that manageable for Isaiah? Could Isaiah go and say, oh, that's nice. I'll pull him down and put him in my little satchel and walk around with him. Is that what he said? Is that a manageable God? The whole earth is filled with his glory. Can you manage that? When Isaiah saw him, he didn't say, oh, he fits in my religious system. He fits in it perfectly. Isaiah 6, 5 says, and I said, woe is me for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He was left in awe. And he said, I am lost. We are in 1 Samuel. And we realize in 1 Samuel that God is establishing a monarchy. The people were living in this way. In the kind of context that they're in, this is how they live. There is no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They worshipped how they wanted to. They created and perverted the worship of God. It's very clear. And so that's going on. And in 1 Samuel we said, just to think about kind of the big picture, God opposes the proud and exalts the humble. Second, despite human evil, God is at work. Third, God will raise up a messianic king. What we're saying in Samuel, what we're seeing is, is the people have turned away from God, they have treated God lightly, and God is going to set up a king. And the goal of setting up a king is to bring rule, to bring direction, to, to, to set people back to what it ought to be. Last week we observed that part of the problem with Israel, which is always a problem in Israel is that God has to deal with these, this rebellious house of Levi. They had created this false sense of what it meant to worship God. They profaned God in their worship. It was a horrendous thing. So God's going to judge the arrogant house of Levi and he is going to exalt the humble servant Samuel. This week, what you see is God judging that group of people, Eli and his family. 
Why? Because there was a perverted view of God. Because God had been taken lightly, and now God was going to show you how he dealt with those who treated him lightly. How false worship would be exposed and true worship would be lifted back up and brought to the fore. So, we're looking at the weight of glory this morning in in seeing God as he is, which will lead to two questions. If God is this glorious, then who could stand before him? And second, how could you stand in his presence? Really, it's kind of the best way. You could say, who can stand and how can you stand? Maybe that's the best way to say that. So, let's start. We'll look at the weight of God's glory. Kind of get a grip on that. Hopefully see that and understand a, a number of things. First thing I would say when you're in thinking in those terms is, we cannot use God. God is not an instrument among many that you pull out whenever you want to. First Samuel 4, 1 and 2, Israel goes to fight against the Philistines. Uh, they are defeated. 4,000 men die. First Samuel 4, 3 and 4, uh, what you're going to see, in, particularly in verse 3, they're going to come together and say, why has the Lord defeated us today? Like they, they, they're going to be defeated. They're going to say, why has the Lord defeated us? Because if the Lord was fighting with them or for them, they would never be defeated. And so they ask the elders. The elders evidently come to them and say, listen, the ark of God wasn't with you. The ark of the Lord's covenant was not with you. The ark, by the way, for some of you, you may not know this, but it's only like three and three quarters kind of feet long and two and a quarter, I think, uh, wide and deep. Small. I mean, it's a small thing. It's, it's not this huge thing. But the ark inside of it, uh, it contained um, the, the two tablets of stone that would contain like the Ten Commandments on each one. It was a reminder of the covenant obligations that, that, that Israel had with God. God had obligations. They had obligations. Those two tablets both um, standing, one standing for God, the other standing for the people. It was a reminder of God being with them and their relationship with him. Uh, their, their relationship, their covenant, you could say, with them. And so the ark also contained a sample of manna as a reminder of God being uh, the God who provided for his people. So it had a lot of things that would related to them, things that God, uh, about their relationship with God. So the ark pointed to God as ruling, speaking, and forgiving. You see all three of those on display. Look at 4 verse 5. As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. Now, in a way you could say they are trying to force God to act. If we bring him into this situation, or we bring the ark, which is kind of bringing God into the situation in their minds, he will have to act. And when they see it, they, they just explode with joy. Because this symbol in their mind of God has shown up. 
one author noted, their assumption is if we bring the ark to battle, Yahweh will be forced to deliver us to protect his honor. Should something happen to the ark, it would make God the loser, and naturally he would not uh, allow that to happen. He'll save, or he'll have to save us now. His honor is at stake. They know that God under pressure, is under pressure because they have the sign of his presence. Hence, he dare not allow them to lose. In their minds, to have God's furniture is to have God's power. The ark is their religious ace in the hole. Some of you may have things like that. You say, I've always got this card. And if times get tough, I always have this phone number. And if times get tough, this is what we'll do. So it's, it, that's kind of what is taking place. And so you kind of have this idea of them not taking God too seriously. They're not really thinking as much about God as they are this piece of furniture. And they're like saying, we already went out there and lost. Now we need to call up God. You know, it's like, and people talk about that kind of thing all the time with regard to prayer or something like that. So, here's the deal. When you look at 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 7, you see the Philistines are afraid by what happened. They're afraid, they're like... They're frightened by what is taking place. They're like, a God has come into the camp. They're actually taking God more seriously than the people are. The people of Israel, which we see that on many occasions throughout the Bible. Verse 8 of First Samuel 4. Woe to us! Who can deliver us from these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. So that's still in people's minds their hearts are like fearful of this god and so they are afraid when they see the furniture come in they think god is kind of uh has to be with the furniture kind of thing and that that's the situation that they find themselves in and so someone says among them maybe the lord's lord of the philistines take courage act like men and fight and so they go out and fight and they defeat Israel. In verse 10 and 11, we find out that uh, 10, 000, or 30,000 of the Israel's foot soldiers die. Um, and, and, and it's kind of one of those things where you're like, what else happens? All these people die. Then the ark gets stolen. In a way, for the Philistines, it would be like they stole their God. And they're going to take it back with them. Eli's sons perish, which God already said would happen to them. God is doing what he said that he would do. It's, it's, it's a powerful kind of picture that is going on here. Now, a lot of people, including myself, so often can find ourselves not taking God seriously. It's real important, I think, for us to stop and say, God is not just kind of our ace in the hole that, that, that's kind of here for us, but we were created for Him. It, it, he is to be the center of life. He is not, you know, some people are really good at like controlling situations, controlling their life, controlling their spouse, controlling every little... They're into always kind of controlling things. 
and, and they can even think about their relationship with God like that. He owes me. He owes me. I control him. I've got the furniture. I've got the furniture. Like, I'm at church standing here. He owes me. And we have this kind of corrupted view of God. And this, this text will bring this to the light. What you see here is that God will suffer shame rather than allow you to carry on a false relationship with Him. God will even allow you to be disappointed with Him if it will awaken you to the sort of God that He really is. He, he is not... He's not about being treated lightly. He wants you to see Him for who He is so that you will live in awe. So that you will be filled with true joy. So that you will know Him as He really is. Davis says, whenever the church stops confessing, thou art worthy and begins chanting, thou art useful. Well, then you know the ark of God has been captured again. Now, we'll keep moving here. We're going to kind of move quicker as we go. But another thing we just see is that you cannot rob God of His glory. You can't do that. What happens in 4.12-17 through 17 is this Benjaminite, he runs to tell the city what had happened. When he does... Eli kind of hears people like shocked by what has taken place. And he's sitting there on a seat with his heart trembling because of the ark of God. And so he asked, tell me about it. Now he's very old and blind, but he wants to know what has happened. Well, this young man tells him exactly what has taken place. And when he heard that the ark had been taken... He falls over backwards, and because of his weight, it breaks his neck, and he dies. So his sons are dead, and he is dead. He was old, the Scripture says, and heavy. He had judged Israel for 40 years, but not just that happens. Then in verses 19 and 20, his daughter-in-law, who is pregnant, she goes into uh, labor has the child right before she dies. She names him Ichabod. And she calls him that because she says, the glory has departed from Israel. Now, a guy named Ellison said, the glory of God had indeed departed, but not because the ark of God had been captured. The ark had been captured because the glory had already departed that's the thing that's confusing to people sometimes it's like no they didn't lose because God was weak God had already left they had been in their worship kind of gathering and doing all the worship kind of things for years and God was not a part of it but they were still doing it the furniture was still there they still went to church. They still tithed. They still had their religious practices. They had all that stuff. But God's glory had already left. That's the picture here. Where was His glory? 
Who were the thieves that took His glory? Who, who was like saying, no glory for God, glory for me? One was Eli. Eli is, remember, he and his sons taking the meat and before the fat that was to go up to God for, for him was even like burned off, they take and eat it. And now he's sitting there in a heavy state because he has been robbing God of His glory for years. He is a glory robber. His sons were glory robber. they, the robbers. They had stolen God's glory. And the weight of it killed them. The weight of that killed them because you were not made to replace God. That's the picture here. You steal God's glory, you will pay. Because you can't handle that. You can't take that. The only thing that you are to do is behold the glory of God and ascribe glory to Him. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, in light of the glory that's been shown, in His mercy, in light of what He's done, offer your life back to Him. You, you don't rob Him. You ascribe glory to the only one that is deserving of glory. When you think about your salvation, you may tell you how you can rob God of glory. It's when you ascribe your things, what you've done for God, you ascribe it to yourself. You say, because of my glory, because of what I have done, God's going to accept me. You've robbed Him. And then when you rob Him, you can't live under that weight. It will crush you. It will destroy you. It will damn you. Because only God is worthy to receive glory and honor and power. He created, He redeems. Ascribe glory to Him. What they thought was a dishonoring of God would actually make a way for the honoring of God. Their false worship, their little God, their taking God lightly, what they thought would dishonor would actually be a way of honoring. God despised the Philistines, but even more, He despised what was going on in Shiloh. That's why there's, in the Scripture you'll hear people say, let judgment begin in the house of God. It's saying, God with His people, how much more is He concerned with them? Why are the Philistines honoring Him more than His people are honoring Him? Eli's death and his family, like the death of them, is showing an era that is passing away. This old leadership of a like God being replaced by a leadership 
that sees God in all of his glory. Now, the Philistines end up, so-called, with God. They end up with the furniture. And God is going to protect the ark in a way that is so profound. But I think it's just important to say they thought, this is how they, this is their view of God. I will take this God and put him among our gods. I'm going to have this rival God come and sit under our God and be with us and make us stronger. Kind of give us more power than we had before. So God's glory, His weight, came into the Philistines. It came to be a part of them in a way. They're taking it around. And guess what? God's glory is terrifying. The weight of His glory is crushing. And what you see in 1 Samuel chapter 5, they capture the ark, they carry it to a place, and what you see is as, as they do this, as this takes place, in chapter 5, verse 6, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people. They felt the weight of His glory. It was heavy against the people, and He terrified and afflicted them with tumors. So they take this, you see, and we, we kind of skipped a verse here, but, but basically this whole picture is they cannot handle the weight. In 5.2, they take it into their God. They take it into the temple of their God. The next morning they wake up. They go in there. They see their God prostrate before the ark. They set it up, which is an odd thing. They're setting up their God, kind of helping him out. They come back the next morning and his head's cut off. Right? And it, it's, his hands are gone. And it's almost one of those things where you see in this moment... In, in this picture here, where they are, they are face to face, these so-called gods, and God is showing His ultimate authority over all gods. He will not have a rival. He will not have a rival standing there before Him as if He were His equal. And so He crushes, you could say, their God, and then you continue forward. And you understand as you're moving forward throughout this text in 1 Samuel 5, 7, and 8, they said, we can't keep the ark here. It's too hard on us and our God. It won't, we can't handle the weight of His glory. So they decide to take Him to another place. And it caused great panic there. And, and, and there's kind of this fear and tumors are breaking out. And, and so what's happening here is the people, and look at 510, it says, they have brought this around to us, the ark of God of Israel, to kill us and our people. They are panic-stricken by the glory of the one true and living God. They are frightened. They are fearful of death. There was a panic all over the city. The weight of His glory showed up. After seven months, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, 
in 17 and 18, you can see what takes place. Basically, after seven months, they decide to send the ark back along with a guilt offering. They're going to send it back. They do not want any more time with this God. But they wanted to make sure that they were not fooled. And so they took two cows uh, who had calves. They tie the calves up, which they would immediately want to run back to their calves. And they, they, they tie them up to this cart. They put the ark in there. They put uh, the guilt offering in there. And they send it away. And it goes straight to Israel. And they watch that unfold. And when it shows up to the people in Israel, they treat God lightly again. They treat the ark lightly. And what we find out is in chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, that they lived, looked inside the ark and 70 of them die as a result. So the question in verse 20 that's posed is, who is able to stand before the Lord this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? What are they saying? Who can stand before him? If he is this glorious and this holy, who could stand before him? What we've seen is, is that Israel takes God lightly. They come under his judgment. The Philistines, they take him lightly. They fall under his judgment. And you're like, what are we going to do? The religious people and the irreligious people are both taking God lightly. And what is there to do? What should one do? You've grown up in a religious family. You grew up going to church. You've been to church every Sunday your whole life. You have spent your life doing devotions and all these different things. And you've got God domesticated. And you've got Him in your box. And you don't have to think. You just show up. And you tithe. And you do whatever. And you've got Him there. And it's great. And you only need Him every once in a while. And you just, and you feel good about where you are religiously because you've been a part of it for so long. It's just normal. And, and you, you think, I've got this. God, God's, I understand Him. He and I understand each other. And then maybe you're over here like the, you're a religious kind of Philistine and you're like, hey, throw Him in there. Jesus is a good teacher and I, I think He'd be great and and uh, yeah, of course, like, man, whatever you like, whatever your flavor, whatever God, man, just bring him in here. It'll be great. Like, I, I remember one time sitting with a, a lady, or I was kind of, we were talking, and, and we were uh, at this art place in, in uh, somewhere, I think it was in Colorado. I walk in there and, and looking at all this artwork or whatever, and then kind of, we had a spiritual conversation, and she was like, I'm like, I don't remember what she said, like Hindu and Jewish, you know, or so she was, she was like, and I was like, well, I'm a Christian. She's like, it's all good, man. It's all good. Like whatever religion, just bring it all together. So this person takes God lightly because they have him in their little religious box. And this person takes God lightly because they have him like almost like a, a series of little stuffed animals. You just say, I got them all. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? What do you do with the religious guy and the irreligious guy? What do you do with the older brother in the prodigal son story 
and the younger brother. What do you do? Here, 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 you know what the older brother does? He would walk in there and be like, oh my goodness, these people. You need to come and get over here. You need to come and get over here. And I will make you twice the son of hell. That's what Jesus said. Come over here with the Pharisee and I will make you a religious damned sinner. But what does the scripture say? How can we stand before or in the presence of God? It says all of Israel lamented. Because you know what? God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Grace, grace is shown in the humbling of the religious and the irreligious, so that in faith they lament and they cling to the only hope they have. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would stir our affections towards a view of you that is not light, a view of you that is weighty, but a view of you rescuing the broken religious and irreligious person. So that none of us in our pride say, we have God, but rather, we throw ourselves before his mercy and praise and honor the one who has delivered in spite of us. In Christ's name, amen.